Welcome to episode 23 of the iPhone Life podcast. I'm Donna Cleveland, editor-in-chief of iPhone Life magazine. And I'm Sarah Kingsbury, senior web editor of iPhoneLife.com. And we have a very special guest today. His name is Michael Cook. He is a teacher and designer in Fairfield, Iowa. Hey, thanks so much for having me. So the theme of the podcast this week is tech and education. President Obama recently announced a new uh, endeavor to teach kids computer science in high school. Um, And so we wanted to explore what the role of technology is in education and why kids need to learn it. And we have a great lineup of other news and tips and apps and gear for you. So let's dive right in. All right. I think we should start first with uh, our favorite tip of the day from this week. Um, Every day we have an awesome tip that lets you know how to do something new and cool with your iPhone or iPad. Um, We actually even have a newsletter where you can get those tips sent straight to your email inbox. You can subscribe at iphonelife.com slash daily tip. Thank you. I always forget those URLs. So Donna, what was your favorite tip this week? Well, I'm a big fan of family sharing, um, which you can set up in iCloud settings. Just go into settings, iCloud, and you'll go through the process there. We'll post a link in the podcast uh, blog post that will let you know how to set up family sharing. But today's tip is how to set up a family reminder. So once you've already set up family sharing, which that'll be iphonelife.com slash podcast in order to see the blog post where we'll explain how to do that. So once you've set up family sharing, when you open the Reminders app, you'll see a list called Family. And when I first set up Family Sharing, I didn't see it there. I had to restart my phone before I did see it. So you can try doing that if you're not seeing it there. And then anytime you want to set up a reminder that you want someone in your family to see, you just add it to that list. And so that's just a really easy way to, instead of always hassling people in your family to do things, just add I it to this list. I love this tip. I use it I all know, the time with my, my kids. It's awesome. And they unfortunately learned how to use it on me too. <laughs> oh, really? So, yeah. So one thing with this, if you don't use reminders much, is to set a time for your reminder. Otherwise, it just sits there in the app and no one ever sees it. But if you set a time, it'll pop up on the phone um, of your family member. Or a place, like if you want them to call you when they get home or something like that, or pick up milk at the store. Good point. I don't use location-based reminders that much, but I think they're very awesome and I should use them. (laughs) I love them. I can post a tip on how to set (laughs) location-based reminders too. So, uh, So that's the tip to set a family reminder and we will post how to do location-based or time-based. All right, great. We also have the premium subscription. It's called the iPhone Life Insider. Why don't you tell our listeners what you get if you become an iPhone Life Insider? So we just launched a free trial of the iPhone Life Insider program and it's our premium subscription. So we give all of our best content to the insiders. So it's 30 days free. Uh, if you go to iphonelife.com insider, you can get all the information there. The premium offerings in Insider are in-depth guides where we walk you through main features of Apple's offerings um, from start to finish. So we have our daily tip where you learn one cool thing every day, just something short and bite-sized. But this lets you really dive into different issues from iCloud to learning everything you can do with iOS 9, how to set up family sharing and how to make the most of all of its features. Those are all examples. We also have Ask an Editor, which lets you, whenever you have an issue that comes up with one of your iOS devices, you can ask it to one of our editors. And so that's a way, if you have a specific issue that comes up that we might not cover, you can still get answers to everything you need. We also um, have video versions of all of our daily tips. So that way you can see it, pause it, rewatch it. You won't miss anything that way. And you also get a digital subscription to iPhone Life Magazine and all of the previous issues as well. So the full archive. So check out iphonelife.com insider and get your free trial. Awesome. Thanks, Donna. So I wanted to share a couple of my favorite insider questions I got this week. Um, They're pretty basic, but sometimes it's sort of those basic things that you don't really know how to do that can be really frustrating because they're the things that you would do most of the time. So the first one is, um, I would like to know how to cancel Siri after it was inadvertently activated. I tend to turn the phone off to make it stop. So now that, especially if you have like a 6S, Um, now that you can just say something that sounds like, Hey Siri, um, your phone can frequently randomly activate, or you can just accidentally press your home button too Mm -hmm. long and it will 
activate and it's a little frustrating. Um, but you don't have to turn your phone off because, and that would be frustrating all by itself because then you have to log back in or use Touch ID or whatever. Um, you can just press the home button again to turn it off or maybe you're across the, the room from your phone and you accidentally activated it. Um, you can just say goodbye or later and Siri <laughs> will just turn itself off. I did not know that you could do that. <laughs> yeah, you can. She might get sassy back at you, but um, she will then turn off. So that's a really simple solution to kind of the downside of that new iOS 9 feature where Hey Siri is on all the time. I'm actually surprised that your phone's not turning on right now. <laughs> I, I don't know why it's not doing that. Maybe because I have it on Do Not Disturb. We'll have to see. Yeah. Thank um, you, Siri. <laughs> so the second one is another really basic thing. Uh this is from Rick, and he says, how can I delete all my text messages at one time instead of one at a time? Um, and you, you can't really just delete every single text message you have at a time, but you can delete entire conversations, and you can de delete multiple conversations at a time. So what you have to do is when you're in the conversation view in text messages, where you basically see a list of everyone you text and sort of you can click on those and open those conversations, you should be able to tap edit in the top right corner and then there'll be those little circles that you can tap and select all the conversations you want to delete and then you can select delete and that will get rid of all the conversations. And I actually think this is a better option than deleting every single text message because there's probably a few things that you will regret deleting if you del just delete all. Um, so that's how you would delete and clear out all of your text messages. Yeah, it is kind of amazing how much information you can have, you can search in your messages. So having all of them disappear does seem like a bad idea for me. But it is yeah. annoying that you don't have that option. Yeah, it's yeah. I, you can set your text messages to automatically delete after thirty days or a mm. year. So if you're if you text a lot and it tends to get crowded, you can actually go into settings and then messages, and there should be an option mm. to choose when they they auto-delete. Which if you're sending photos and videos a lot, you might need to do because it really can add to your storage space. Right. But if there's one main offender who uh, sends you a lot of photos and videos, you can actually go into that conversation and tap details. And then you can see a list of all of the photos and videos they've sent mm -hmm. you and you can just delete them from there. Because surprisingly, those take up a lot of space on your phone. And if you have a 16 gigabyte phone, which you shouldn't because it's just not big <laughs> enough. But if you have one, then you should, you know, and you're finding that text messages for some reason are taking up a lot of space. That is the culprit right there. Yeah. So that friend who sends you all the memes, you can just go and, well, you might want to keep some of them, but. <laughs> right. Well, you can save them to photos and then delete them from your text messages. Yeah. That's a good idea. All right. So moving right along to news of the week. Uh, yesterday, Alphabet released its quarterly earnings report. For now, in case you didn't know, Alphabet is actually now the parent company of Google. And so yes. when we say Alphabet, we really are talking about Google. And this is the first quarterly report now that Apple, uh, that Alphabet has rebranded. So uh, everyone was paying close attention to this. And Alphabet has now surpassed Apple as the most valuable company in the world. Apple has held that title since 2011. So, right. you know, it's kind of big news. Uh, what do you guys think? Um, I mean, when you think about, I don't know, I, I guess I don't really think it's a big deal. I mean, because it's just like the stock valuation, which obviously Apple had a less than stellar earnings report, as we discussed in our last um, episode. But it's really just each company is kind of trying to talk some talk that will convince investors to panic the least or get the most excited and I don't know if it really says a huge amount about the long-term viability of a company. I mean, yeah, to me, it's more like bragging rights. It, it, it is a big deal. It was a big deal for Apple to be able to be the most valuable company in the world. There's something to that <laughs> title. Our guest, which maybe you've forgotten is even here, is nodding along <laughs> and laughing. So Michael, feel free to hop, jump in if you yeah. have something to add to that. You're a Google fan, aren't you? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> as a Google fan... Uh, it is a big deal. <laughs> All right. We are corrected. Explain why we are so wrong. Uh, brag, bragging. Bragging rights. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the same reason that it was a big deal for Apple, it is now a similar big deal for Google. And we could probably expect to see it just kind of like uh, teeter back and forth between the mm -hmm. two, where mm -hmm. next quarter Apple's going to get it 
and then it's just going to fuel a lot of un- unproductive hate comments in in the, in the comment section of any article about it. Which we already, we definitely don't have enough of that already. No, no. we definitely need more. Uh, one thing I thought was interesting is that Gmail now has more than 1 billion active users and uh, Apple just had, the announcement has more than 1 billion active devices now. So they both, I mean, that's just kind of a huge they're big Number. numbers all around. I mean, do, yeah. you, do you know anyone who doesn't have at least one Gmail account? <laughs> no, that's actually a really good point. It should be higher than one billion, I guess. And, you know, my daughter always tells me that you can, she can, like, tell how old the person is who's emailing her by, like, what the... I mean, I think this is a pretty common thing, actually, that a lot of people have said. But she can tell how old the person is who's emailing her based on, like, whether it's a Yahoo account or a Gmail account or... She probably doesn't even know anyone with an AOL account, but... I know. I was going to say AOL, I feel like, is pretty old school. Or just the way in which you chose the the first section of your, of your email. Like, people mm-hmm. who just... That we're now in the generation where you're... Or maybe we grew up in the generation where you're trying to just get your own name. Mm-hmm. But previously, it was like, what crazy combination of interests could you combine like sparkle <laughs> butterfly or or my first email was storm slayer too <laughs> oh i love that yeah. um i i don't want to tell like you guys had what, boring ones um i'm just not even going to comment on my yahoo email name yeah well now we're in, Come a, on, Sarah, now, now we're in scarcity. i still use it so i'm oh. not sharing it <laughs> oh okay got it we're in scarcity now so future generations will just have to try to find some semblance of a relevant name because just every single day there are fewer and fewer available. When I was helping my younger daughter set up her uh, Gmail account, her first Gmail account, she I was so jealous because she has a fairly unusual first name and she actually didn't have to put any numbers or anything. She just got to have her name. And wow, I was like, that you must is... keep this email forever. I, <laughs> I think that's actually a silver lining to a very uh, dark and concerning reality which is that we may very likely start naming our children based on what screen domains are available (laughs) is that what you're planning to do michael is expecting a child in the next couple weeks yeah no i I named her april so that's that's already gone but like (laughs) if you choose a name for a business you first look it up on instagram and you look for a, a web domain if we're naming a child and they're gonna have to have a a coherent life online are we gonna have to start checking those names on on Instagram and and other op- places online. That's a really good point. I used to uh, be in charge of the entertainment calendar at a previous publication I worked at, and uh, I remember really judging bands harshly for their failure to choose a, <laughs> a name that did well in, like, search, Google search. I mean, we're totally off topic, yeah, yeah. but I feel like this is a bit more interesting, actually, than, like, Google earnings. We're going to start doing names well, that- with letter substitutions. Could be. Just <laughs> that would be, <laughs> yeah. I don't... Oh, that's so classy. <laughs> so, uh, it would be like church, the band churches, but they they substituted a U with a V. So, if I just had my yeah, name as like amazing. Robert, but with like I don't know, like a, a three, a three instead of an R, <laughs> yeah, there you go. Wow, I please don't do that, parents. <laughs> so, one interesting thing back to Alphabet is that they've segmented their reports into Google and then other bets. And Google reported, like, had really good results. And other bets, you could see more clearly what's not, like, the biggest moneymakers for Alphabet. Um, uh, Some people are arguing segmenting can be really beneficial for these quarterly reports. What do you think? Is this something Apple should do and segment off some of the... But the problem is it can kind of work against you. Like, if there's things you want to hide, not segmenting is awesome. But then yeah. you can't like sort of pick and choose. You have to kind of pick one way and just go with it or it kind of becomes obvious that you're hiding things. I don't know. I mean. Yeah. And maybe Alphabet's okay with that because they're, they're fine with having some of their ventures be just really cool projects they're working on that aren't the core of their business. Whereas Apple doesn't want everyone to know that their iPads aren't. I mean, people already know the iPads aren't doing well, but things like the Apple Watch or the iPad Pro They're supposed to be like the new up-and-coming products, and if they're not, they probably want to kind of be able to hide that. But on that. the other hand, I mean, it <laughs> seems like the whole point of the whole Alphabet idea, you know, being the parent company of Google and other ventures, is that there are segments, so they kind of, it's like, it's just a different idea of how they're presenting their company, whereas Apple's pretty, just it's just Apple. I suspect yeah. there's also uh, legal, like corporate structures and... and tax benefits and a whole bunch of just kind of high level 
corporate nerd benefits to this <laughs> restructuring. Like it allows them legal opportunities. Right. But I do want to point out that we have like between all of us kind of not very much mm. business expertise and you should definitely <laughs> listen to a different podcast if you're looking for investment advice. For sure. <laughs> or to learn all of the reasons why Alphabet, Google decided to become Alphabet. Right. <laughs> so our next news of the week is um, – uh, Bloomberg Business reported that Apple is working on long-distance wireless charging and that it could come out by 2017. So this would let you charge your iOS devices not only like without being plugged in, but also not even being on a charging pad or anything like that. Um, they haven't specified how long-range it will be, but I would imagine like somewhere within a room you'd be able to, you'd be able to charge your phone. Um, so that would be... Uh, very different experience than what we have currently. Uh, do, would that make a big difference to you guys in terms of what device you'd be likely to buy? I mean, I feel like at this point, remember, I don't even know if you guys remember because I suspect I'm a fair amount older than both of you, but do you remember how you used to, like when you had phones with cords, you had to have like the longest cord possible so you could stretch it from the hallway into your bedroom? Yeah. Yes. Right? And I feel like in a similar way, you kind of need the longest lightning cable possible so you can like, use your phone and still charge it at the same time. So the idea of being untethered is very exciting. Well, it's just an invisible tether now. Right. Well, <laughs> as long as it's invisible and I don't have to like sit yeah, three feet yeah. from, the, from the wall plug. Um, but also, if they're planning, which is another rumor, that they're planning to eliminate the headphone jack and just have the lightning port, then, you know, this is a really important development, obviously. Yeah, I think that's a big one. And also just like bedroom clutter. Like I think cords are so ugly. It's always a struggle to try to figure out how to like weave them in a way that's not like an eyesore. So I like right. that idea. Yeah. My... What about you, Michael? <laughs> oh, sorry. Yeah, no, this, ahead, this, was, this was Nikolai Tesla's dream like over a century ago. So we finally made it. He was dreaming and like inventing wireless technology systems that people just thought were crazy. And... And now we're living his dream. Yeah, now, now it's just to me it a, does a seem casual kind of like house. magic. Yeah, it's, it's like, how a... is this working again? <laughs> yeah, oh, who, who knows? <laughs> All right, so we'll let you know what develops as far as those rumors go. Yeah, but one thing to take note of is that it, it's not rumored to be out for the iPhone 7 this year. It's rumored to come out next year. So, so. iPhone 7S, assuming the naming conventions continue? Yes, exactly. Um, and our last news item is right it's about the march event right right it's about the march event the latest rumors of what we'll be seeing are the ipad air 3 is the ipad air 3 iphone 5 se and new apple watch bands but not the apple watch 2 um and so it's such a random assortment of things it is it will for the most surprising thing to me is the ipad air 3 just because usually that's a fall announcement um and what i've heard is just because apple is putting so much attention on the ipad pro they didn't get it together in time to release that last fall, so now they're just doing it in, in March instead. So is this just sort of like, like oh, this iPhone we should have released, and oh, this iPad we should have released? I mean, pretty much. Are, are we totally sure this announcement is even taking place? This seems like a really unexciting assortment of things. I would be really surprised if Apple didn't have a spring announcement, but I, I mean, none of this sounds that exciting to me, to be honest. Well, it is cool because part of the rumor is that the iPad Air 3 might have some of the same features as the iPad Pro. Um, yeah, for a like, lower price, that's nice. But Right, although I guess it's not, I mean, I think the most interesting thing would be Apple Pencil support, and that's... They haven't committed to that yet. Right. <clears throat> and there, the rumors are that it will have the smart connector, it'll have an improved camera with a flash. Um, Better speakers. yeah. So it'll be interesting to see if that could give the iPad sales a little boost since the with the quarterly earnings report, the iPad was down once again. Um, so yeah, I mean, as a Google fan, are you excited about any of these potential announcements, Michael, or are you going to pass? <laughs> uh, as a designer, I am envious of like a uh, high-resolution stylus mm. that is really appealing and is just woefully inadequate on the tablets that I would consider using. But Have you tried any like hands-on time with iPad Pro? I would not touch that. No, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. no I, I, I just don't know anyone Apple enough or, 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 like or, or wealthy enough. <laughs> yeah. 
I I uh, went to an i uh, to an Apple store. I don't have an iPad Pro, but I had a chance to try out the Apple Pencil, and it was pretty amazing. The, I saw, the amount of detail. Yeah, I saw. <laughs> the closest experience I have is last night at the caucus. A man was just standing in the middle of the crowd with an iPad Pro, <laughs> painting with his iPad pencil. <laughs> that gives you an idea of Fairfield. It's a very quirky community. <laughs> oh, it was it was amazingly quirky. It was, <laughs> yeah, it's it was great. really beautiful too. It was kind of did you guys notice any I just noticed it was so interesting the way even the last time I caucused was two thousand eight. Mm-hmm. Um and it was just interesting to see how iPhone it was mostly iPhones, basically how smartphones were playing into people were tracking the caucus results even as we were being counted mm. and people were taking like caucus selfies, which is like a new sure. and fun phenomenon. And even mm-hmm. I saw some of the people doing, I, I don't want to get into too many details of what happened to the, at the caucus where I attended because that would reveal my party affiliation. But I, it was interesting to see even the people who were in charge of the caucus were doing caucus business with iPhones. And that was, I mean, that was like just very interesting to see how mm. smartphones are basically infiltrating like every little aspect of our lives and we don't even really notice it anymore. I mean, I think eventually we should be able to vote with our, that should be an option. Like always it should be an option to go in person, but if you, it would, how cool would it be if you could just vote from your phone? Even, even just to gain admission, I think we spent just an hour trying to just get the caucus started because so many people were trying to mm, right. get into the building. Like register. Yeah. 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 Both parties saw um, just really like record-breaking uh, actually, I think the Democrats didn't have quite as many as they did in 2008, but both parties had really record-breaking attendance for the most mm. part. Our ward ran out of note cards that we needed to turn in as our voting system. <laughs> yes, we need yeah. some more mobile technology <laughs> yeah. in this process. Definitely could have gone smoother last night. But anyway, moving on to topics that are actually related to tech. Yeah, which is Apple complaints and learning. That's our next section. And basically here we talk about things that we think are annoying about Apple or things that we've recently learned and are loving or learned and are not loving. Sarah, what do you have this week? I'll start with my complaint, which is I feel like autocorrect does this bait and switch thing where I'm typing along and then it will suggest a word and I'm like, ooh, that's the word I want. But as I'm thinking that, I'm also typing the next letter. And so by the time my other thumb goes and presses that letter, it's changed. I mean, not the letter, the, the word. It's changed. And so I end up, has that happened to you? You know, the center word in the auto sort of suggestion box? Mm-hmm. And you go in. So, and then I end up sending these text messages that don't make sense. I just want it to move a little more slowly. Or I should, I yeah, don't know. Yeah, I definitely, I'm sure you've noticed this, Sarah. I don't have like a very careful style with both. <laughs> like I, we use Slack for inter-office communication. And with texting, I'll just like blatantly send really wrong you know like (laughs) things that aren't spelled right and things that are I don't know I just always think it's acceptable because it's kind of informal communication but with autocorrect I guess it's a little different because if it's completely the wrong word people don't even know what you're trying to say I feel maybe more tortured about it than the average person (laughs) because I feel like people judge me like oh she's an editor why did she like (laughs) use that wrong word or not punctuate that but probably that's completely in my head um, it's probably not. I probably should worry about that more. <laughs> I don't know. There's a, I think there's a, there's a, st- a steep distinction between f- formal communication and informal communication. So I, I, gi- yeah. I give you forgiveness. Thank you, Michael. Well, thanks. Yeah. It's like I can sketch poorly in my private time, but I'm going to yeah. put, put out good work when people pay me. <laughs> totally. All right. I'm going to um, totally start. Yeah, embrace it. it. Just, I'm just going to text in emojis from now on. <laughs> <laughs> My complaint this week is about iCloud Photo Library. Overall, I think it's a big improvement in terms of Apple's offerings for photo management, but it's it still has a lot of gaps. Uh, one thing I really don't like is that you can't control media separately on different devices. Like on my iPhone, I wish I could just store some photos that I wanted to see there without deleting them from other devices. Like if I go and try to delete photos on my phone, it's deleting it from everywhere. And um, and the other problem too is even if you decide to go for the option of optimizing photos so it's taking up less space on your phone, then I've noticed it takes a while to load it. Like and forever. Yeah. So now whenever I'm scrolling through photos want to show someone, I feel like I'm waiting at least 10 seconds maybe for a photo to, to load in high resolution. 
Right. And sometimes you can't tell, yeah. like, is this just a blurry photo or is it just that it's I know. Like, I'm like, I could have sworn this was a good photo. <laughs> yeah. But um, what do you use for photo management? You got, do you guys use iCloud Photo Library? Or? I do, but I would really like the option to keep all my photos in the cloud and just have a specific few on my phone. I mean, I guess yeah. I could just download them regularly onto my computer and then just, but. Well, that's what I've ended up doing, but I just think it's annoying. Yeah, but I, yeah, I want to be lazier than that. Yeah. That's the whole point of mobile technology is being as lazy as we possibly can, right? That's what I think. So there's this operating system called Android, and, <laughs> and, and Google's released this app called Google Photos. And tell us about it. It, sol- it, it? solves your problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it has its own problems, as with all tech, but yeah, you can, you can remove photos from a device. It will save the thumbnails, but store it online. So you get the thumbnails immediately, but when you want to view the full photo, it can take as long as it would normally take if it wasn't on your device. So do you have any complaints about your phone this week or things you've learned? Uh, I actually have a complaint about iPhones. I, so I don't use them myself, but I troubleshoot for my family and my family-in-law. And they have iPhones. Just I, I sign them up for Insider and I can take over yeah. that for you. Oh, I, I've actually been considering that. That, that could help. The, the most recent weird thing was my mother-in-law had accidentally set up uh, iMessages so that anytime her son sent a text message to her. It also popped up in her own feed to herself. There was mm. some duplication. Anytime mm. she sent some text message, it would. so what was happening was deep in the settings of messaging, she had some like confirmation message set up so that she would also receive the same message that she was sending out. It was like a receipt. So she was CCing herself, basically? Essentially. And it was deeply buried. And neither of them had any recollection of ever getting to that point. Wow. Um, I didn't even know you could do that. And I'm supposed to be (laughs) like our resident expert. So there's a way to get receipts, essentially, of the messages you send out. But it looks as if you're just sending it to two people or to yourself again so people get their own messages to them to other people uh that was really frustrating and then the other thing was every time she'd plug in her iphone it would open itunes and that yeah, was you have a, to yeah. change that in your your computer settings yeah so she had to go into itunes and then turn off the auto sync which is something she thought she wanted but what she mm. really wanted was syncing over air continuously because she does want to auto sync Mm-hmm. So that was that was an um, an interface issue in which the 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 checkboxes poorly communicated their function. iTunes is a big hot mess. I think everyone <laughs> it is. Yeah. All right. Well, let's talk about apps this week. Uh, Sarah, have you tried any apps you're liking? Um, I have recently returned to an app that I think everyone probably knows about, but I've just been enjoying it so much that I thought I'd bring it up anyway, which is Duolingo. Um, Mm. I actually, uh, majored in French and Spanish in university and, uh, and of course you either use it or lose it with language. So I've been trying to use it a little bit. Um, and I've been using Duolingo to kind of practice my pronunciation and keep my vocab up and, uh, and I've just been doing it for like 10 minutes a night and it's been really great and I love it. I just, I think it's, um. It seems to work on the idea that you basically learn just by seeing words in context and hearing them in context and repeating them. And I think it's really hard to do kind of language learning well in a way that encapsulates everything, like the reading aspect, the listening aspect, the speaking aspect. Um, And I think Duolingo does a really good job. It's not going to take you beyond really sort of basic uh, skills and vocab, but it's a really good way to start, and it's a really good way to kind of maintain your skills. And so, I'd recommend it to anyone who's interested in rebuilding a skill of a language or just getting started. I've thought about using it a lot. <laughs> I want to learn Spanish, but I was going to ask you: Do you feel like it's it's as good for a beginner as it is for someone who already has that foundation? It's hard for me to judge because I already know so much. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, it's all kind of hazy, but it's it's there, and it just has to be woken back up. But I think, I think you could. I tested out of a lot of the first levels, but um, I think they present it in a way. There's a lot of repetition without it being boring. There's they cover a lot of the basic stuff, 
I think if you spent enough time on it every day, you could really make a difference. I think the key is to make it a habit, and the key to making it a habit is to not try and do too much every day. Like, it can be exciting, and you can get Mm. carried away and be like, I'm going to do, like, 100 lessons a day. But you should really just do less than you – like, stop before you're ready so that it really just happens quickly. Yeah, it would be really cool if we did a comparison of Rosetta Stone and Duolingo. I mean, Rosetta Stone involves more of an investment to even try it, but it – because I wonder if it's really if Rosetta Stone's really that much better anyway, and it's and Duolingo is totally free. Um, I think it would be. I think if you really want to learn a language, you should invest in like just a really good basic Spanish grammar textbook. Actually, I would recommend, and this is totally unrelated to iPhones, but I would recommend the Shaum um, vocab workbook. It's S C H A U M. They have a vocab workbook and they have a grammar workbook. And I would just use those to get your basic sort of grammar understanding down. And then I would just take advantage of the free resources out there. You can watch, you can listen to music, stream music from any like subscription music service, Spotify, Apple Music. You can watch TV shows and movies in Spanish or any language, but really Spanish is the easiest one to find the most resources for. You can there's so much out there. Mm-hmm. Like, why should you pay? Just get the basic familiarity. Use, like, an app like Duolingo to guide you through it. Um, get a good textbook for just the basics. And all it really takes is just the daily habit. Which happens to be the hardest part. Right. That's why I'm saying do less than you feel inspired to at yeah. first because then you'll be able to maintain it. The app I've been using this week uh, is Linda. And Linda is just a really awesome resource for tutorials in a ton of different areas. I've been uh, doing lessons in DSLR and video editing, and uh, the app is really great. It's just a nice way to be able to watch the videos. If you have a premium subscription, you can download videos onto your phone for offline viewing. Um, It just has a nice interface. But really, it's just I like Linda, so I thought I'd bring that up. It is a subscription service, so the app is is free, but you'll have to be paying for the service. Yes, you do. But it's some of the like learning services are not that great, and I find that the Linda courses you actually learn things from. Yeah, they're amazing. Yeah, they've got searchable transcripts and a whole bunch of great features. Yeah, that was one thing when I was in India, which I recently visited. um, I I downloaded a course for offline viewing, but then I found some other courses I wanted to look at. And it was really nice to be able to read the transcripts because they yep. had that as well when the video wouldn't load because the internet was too slow. Mm. So it was nice having those different features. Yeah. What apps are you liking these days? Or what app is your favorite at this uh, moment? I'll, I'll share. There's a great set of kids apps by this studio called Sago, which is S-A-G-O. Mm. And their website is sagosago.com. And on the iTunes store, you can search for either Sago or Sago Mini, which is the kind of um, prefix to most of their app names. And they're just perfect apps for kids, ages like one to four, one to five. They've got a whole Mm -hmm. selection of them. They have, they're all amazingly animated. They're very illustrative based. So it's a lot of, simple household or accessible activities for kids um some of its exploration like you can be a little Mm. dog and you can go around outer space or you can travel around the ocean and interact and encounter different magical creatures but then there's also great activity-based apps like there's one where you're building things for friends so you just kind of walk around your neighborhood and encounter other animal friends and then you help them build things and each building is like uh, a series of different simple activities kind of stitched together so like hammering nails and stitching fabric together or sawing wood and each has a simple Mm. gesture based activity but it's really well animated and um, just parallels great to activities that kids interact with during the rest of their lives. I felt it was great because none of it's sensationalized there's no ads or dark patterns to try and trap kids into doing things that are for the developer's own good or their own agenda. So that's good. Really well-made apps and great for kids, not overly um, 
dramatic or, or flashy. Doesn't get them all like hyped up. Yeah, it really cool. pulls them in, allows them to kind of focus. Nice. I'll have to recommend that to my, my sister for her yep. little boy. Um, so let's just get into the main section here. Uh, we're talking about tech and education today. So we're here to discuss the role of tech in schools uh, with Michael Cook, since he teaches technology in schools. So why is it important to learn about computer science in schools? Uh, I hope it is. I hope, I hope it's not like what cursive was for us, which is where <laughs> our middle school teacher was like, you're going to have to learn this. And then we didn't. I have a feeling, I'm assuming it's, it's going to be a bit more productive than that. Um, Maybe you could tell us a little bit about like, what classes you've taught that have to do with uh, technology or computer science. Yeah, so I've taught both a general digital media course and then most recently a course on app prototyping. And I think both of those have layers of benefit. And then the highest layer, which would answer this question, is uh, I think it was Tupac who said... Uh, <laughs> It's, to paraphrase, you have to play the game. Don't let the game play you. And as technology right. becomes like increasingly complex and 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 performs more and more of our day to day activities for us, uh, the fear is that at some point we become so unfamiliar with how these systems work that we become unable to have any sort of freedom or power within the system. So, in that sense. Understanding technology from an early age prepares us to be leaders and empowered individuals within a world of technology rather than uh, essentially slaves to technology, which is the, 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 the darker avenue to take. Wow, that was deep. That was good. <laughs> so that would be like the highest level. Um, on a more pragmatic level, money and satisfaction would be the two great reasons to pursue this stuff. Um, we're now at a point in which technology is central to mainstream life, whereas maybe when we were in high school, it was just less, less central. It was seen either as a youth thing or a nerd thing, whereas now mm -hmm. it is a default thing for most of us. And so that means that both the ways in which we express and build things in society that will be appreciated or will be of benefit are going to be digital and the ways in which um, we were most likely to make money is either entirely digital or has a huge world in digital. So, mm. From what I understand, the, the class that you taught in app prototyping, um, that you, you came up with the idea for the course, and this is at a private school that doesn't have like a program for computer science, right? right. So like, how did it come about that you decided to teach this class? Um, there's, there's also kind of angles to that. I had my own personal angle. This is something that can be accessed specifically by the software we're using, which for this prototyping class was a relatively new software called Atomic.io. Hmm. It's a great web-based service for professional prototyping for designers. Uh, is there a cost to that or is it free? It's got a, it's got a, it's got a trial. It's got like a, uh, I think a $10 monthly fee for the smallest tier of subscription. Maybe maybe lower. But it's, so it's got multi-tiers for subscription, but there's a great trial to try out. Um, and it's accessible to any type of uh, laptop. So hmm. a lot of the students at our class at our school have Chromebooks, which makes me happy. Um, <laughs> but whether they're on a MacBook or Chromebook. What's that? What is yeah, a Chromebook? Yeah, what is a Chromebook? <laughs> it's just this, um, this computer that's completely dominating Apple in the educational <laughs> industry. But so whatever, whatever laptop device they're on that can run a browser, they can all access this tool. So for a school that doesn't have a large technical infrastructure already, mm -hmm. this is something that we could jump into immediately. We were able to get, because Atomic.io is so wonderful, they gave our students extended trials. Cool. So we were able to do this for free, which I hope leads to some of these kids continuing to pursue working with this tool in the future. But they're able to kind of jump in and get professional experience um, on low-grade computers and very quickly. So maybe outline what you what you learn in an app prototyping class for those of us who don't know. Yeah, yeah. So we were learning to design app prototypes. And just to break down those three words, which kind of summarizes the entire course, um, a prototype would be 
the, the more basic definition of a prototype would be an incomplete or early stage idea or implementation of a product or idea. So it's not, it's not mm -hmm. finished and it's usually not something you do at the end, but it's something you do to start bridging your ideas to reality. It's the, it's the, it's the bridge between those two stages, uh, which is just great for a kid in general who has limited time and attention Mm -hmm. but a wealth of imagination and ideas and a desire to express that rather than jumping straight into coding or programming, which has a huge learning curve to get into and just long development times. This is things that kids are able to get going in a few days. So they're able to jump into prototypes quickly because it's rough and early stage. And then in our situation, they were also using it to learn about problem solving and logical thinking and a prototype. Mm -hmm for them was essentially what the result was is like um, an interactive and nonlinear PowerPoint presentation. That's That fits on a screen, a, a phone screen. And so with this prototype, they would have thought through the user experience and the user interface and all that? Yeah, it's in between just full design and code where mm -hmm. it requires technical design and logical thinking, system mm -hmm. thinking about the interface and how it would work without after worrying about how it would be implemented to work that way. So they have to think about where the buttons will be placed, what they'll look like, and um, if users can understand how to find them, but not how to make the button do the function that they intended to do. That's where they can mock right. it up. They can, they can pretend that it works. Why is app development development something you think is important for kids to learn i mean you've you got into it a little yeah. bit about technology in general like the bigger picture but app development in particular for mobile phones um it just just so an app would be in this situation uh a digital tool that has like a creative or productive or or educational useful function primarily as opposed to a website um, which would be more for information consumption and entertainment or just learning. Mm -hmm. So this is accomplishing tasks. And we started the class by looking at the number of things, the number of actions and things we need to accomplish throughout our day that are now being accomplished with apps, which ranges from phone calls to tracking our time to tracking our activity and fitness to learning languages. Um, these devices are kind of internalizing physical products that used to just dominate our shelves and our homes. So in just terms of accomplishing their goals, if they want to be better able to accomplish their goals, they can look to app to look to apps. And they can either rely on the people who are making them currently, or they can become pioneers and come up with a new better solutions or the new better replacements for all the consumables that we've been producing the last forever. Sarah, are your kids in school learning any, any of these skills? Do you know? Um, it's, they are, uh, there are some computer science classes. I don't know if they're app specific mm. available at the high school that my older daughter attends. I don't believe there's anything there. They touch on robotics at, in the oh. sort of shop class at the middle school. But as far as the high school goes, there are computer science courses available, but they are, um, they're not required courses, and mm. so Th this like was a, this was a, yeah this was a yeah. effectively an elective, right? And so it's not you know like if you were referring to cursive, Michael, yeah. and everyone has to learn cursive. You don't get a choice about it, and right. in this case, you have to actively choose, and that has to be a priority because there's always more electives yeah. than you have time to take in school. And so my older daughter has chosen to use all of her elective time taking music classes. Yeah. <laughs> um, which is fine. She takes yeah. a lot of like really high-level science and math classes, so I'm not worried about her, and she loves music. But I really feel like this is such a basic part of life that everyone should have a basic familiarity with these things, says the person who doesn't have any basic familiarity <laughs> with these things. Well, yeah, so that you're, you're, in a, you're in a great situation to be able to, to verify that, that need. Yeah, I mean, so President Obama recently announced a $4 billion initiative to teach computer science in, in grades K through 12. I think I just said high school in the intro, but really it's starting at cool. an early age. Um, and right now, only 25% of schools have 
access to computer science classes. So that's kind of why I was curious in this area, where that stands. Um, But I'm just curious what you guys think. You know, this is an area where there are increasing a number of jobs. It seems like people are able to to get good tech jobs. But what do you guys see as being the tech jobs of the future that kids can be preparing for uh, now and how will it be different than the jobs available today? Well, can I talk about school funding for a second? Yes. <laughs> First, um, I feel like, and of course, a lot of school funding is done on the state level, so it's not really up to President Obama, but a lot of schools aren't even getting the funding for the most basic things, like even just having a good student-teacher ratio or a safe school or just just adequate classes in the most basic subjects. And so computer science obviously is it's it's reaching the level where it is a basic subject. But you know, if if kids aren't even getting like learning to read properly because if you can read, you can learn anything basically. Right. But kids aren't, you know, if schools aren't even receiving the resources to read properly. Um a lot often, you know, in mm-hmm. Iowa we're pretty lucky we have high quality schools, but there are some serious, you know, budget cuts happening and there's it's playing out in different ways all over the country and honestly how much is four billion dollars when you look at how many school districts there are it's really not that much it's a nice idea it's putting emphasis and bringing attention to something that's important right but I feel skeptical about I mean the places where kids are getting access to this are the places where locally there's enough money to properly fund the schools and so Mm-hmm. I don't think it's going to make a huge difference unless we like address school funding, which is off topic, but you know. No, yeah, if, uh, a room full of computers is not going to just uh, empower students without the educational and like the, the workforce behind it. So if you don't have good teachers, if you don't have good basic school infrastructure, it doesn't matter how many computers you have or how good they are because it's not going to matter. Yeah. yeah, and I would argue it's not off topic because this whole initiative is what inspired the theme for this podcast and really how successful it be will successful it will be I think uh, the infrastructure of the schools and the system that we have is is pretty important and on topic. <laughs> All right, thanks. I have I have feelings about this because right. obviously, you know, I'm pretty invested in our public school system and I I really want to support it, but it's also disappointing to see all the ways in which it's not a priority, like all over the country. Yeah, it's yeah. it's in some situations it's so so for uh, some level of privilege in society, it is kind of a required skill if you want to have a career at the level of your social status. Um, and then in some situations, it can be a catalyst to raise a group of people, raise a group of youth out of maybe poverty through this really this comparatively really accessible technology that they can use to create amazing value and access markets that they could never have without a digital environment, a digital ecosystem to work in, without apps. Right. A, a, a child who is living in poverty can still teach themselves to code, can still build an app and put it on the same market where very privileged people are working and get the same customers. And they can make they can pull that money in from outside of their community and raise themselves up at least. And you could imagine a fleet or whole generation of kids in a community being raised out with this education. But it still has this fundamental, um, there's still this fundamental difference between communities that could just at a basic level support technical infrastructure and then communities who couldn't even do that. And kids having to like go way out of their way in order to gain this knowledge. So it reaches, it reaches it reaches further into inequality than some things, and it has good reach into inequality, but there's still intense um, ways in which it fails to reach people who really need help. Right, and let's return to that in a minute, but to, just to return to the question of what are the tech jobs that we're seeing today that are available? What, how do you guys see um, what jobs will involve tech, tech skills in the future? And everything, every job? That Yeah, so that's kind of what I think. There's a scary trend in which job, different jobs require tech until they get replaced entirely by the tech. Um, so there's this, a new technology comes up, it requires people, and then once people work on it enough, some 
programmers and developers figure out how it could be done without people, and mm-hmm. then the people have to move on to new things. Um, so there are a lot of areas in design or development or just any workforce. I think uh, accounting is a great example where QuickBooks is now taking up basically all entry-level accounting jobs. It's I love QuickBooks. <laughs> you, you essentially have to know someone who's... who's um, compassionate to an aspiring accountant or financial person to get an entry-level job Hmm. just because QuickBooks accomplishes so much for uh, uh, a higher up in a company that an entry-level would need to typically be doing. But on the other hand, um, I feel like QuickBooks is so easy. I mean, it's not, you have to like sort of learn some of the basics, but it's fairly intuitive actually. I mean, yeah, no, which which means that a, comp- a small company who would normally hire an entry level accountant can take over that themselves. Yeah, actually, so, so I the, mean, I without any accounting knowledge learned yeah. how to use QuickBooks and set up for the last company I worked for set up an entire QuickBooks system that took care of all of you know a lot of the basic accounting needs of the company. Yeah. I mean, I think another thing is that you know with smart home becoming a bigger uh, trend and. The auto industry, self-driving cars, uh, that really if you're in a lot of different jobs that would be considered like blue-collar jobs, you're going to need tech skills. Like if you're doing it, if you're a handyman and you're fixing a house that has like smart home systems or if you're an auto mechanic and... Yeah. So uh, automation would probably be the common bond between all of those industries, which is if you can understand how to make computers do more themselves. If you can learn how to automate a technical system, that's Mm going to be probably within this generation a reliably valuable skill. So not not doing accounting yourself, but knowing how to take QuickBooks further and right. and have it do f- fancy things <laughs> that that a, that a person who just jumps into QuickBooks intuitively couldn't understand. Like so being a, being a power yeah, being a power <laughs> user for for software is going to become a valuable skill. And it's actually yeah. pretty easy to become a power user without getting any formal training. Like with Lynda.com. With Lynda.com, I mean, like, even softwares themselves have, like, amazing help sections now, and then there's forums online. So um, if you have a question about how to use a specific software, you can generally find the answer yourself or find people with enough expertise to and willingness to just help you out because they're sort of crowdsourcing their knowledge. Um, one thing that concerns me, though, is if you don't get the basic technical skills to access this sort of crowdsourced knowledge and take advantage of the ability yeah. without formal training to um, leverage these skills for your own benefit. And I think this is what Obama is trying to address yeah. with this $4 billion program. There's really going to be like a really stark inequality. Like if you don't have the basic skills in this sort of new way of interacting with the world, then you're completely left out. Mm-hmm. And design is playing a role in that problem. It, that was... I think that we got a question here, but design, in a sense, is is it's it, I think iPhone and iOS and their move mm. to their new flat um, paradigm has illustrated this, in which they are removing many a lot of the scaffolding. They're removing a lot of the hints in the interface. They're 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 relying more on the fact that users are very accustomed with actions and processes within the, in, mm. the, the operating system, which, which so is... So what you mean is they went from having these icons that were had like real-world sort of... Yeah, the skeuomorphic icons right. that, that communicated their function better, that, that left less to assume or less to kind of memory in the user... And that creates. Let's a... give an example of that, just for those. So, like something that looks literal, well, right? Well, for instance, the note icon, the note app icon, mm. is still is skeuomorphic, in my opinion, because it looks yeah. like a notepad. Or the trash can icon. So you're like, oh, I understand. You're you're trashing this. Yeah. What? Is that would... what you mean? Like getting rid of those kinds of and, things? And you just instance, have to. It know. would be more like um, accessing the settings by swiping up. With no indication that you needed to do that. What the like right. the control it, center? The control center is hidden. Yeah, and it is. Right. It is you just have to is, know it's there. There is no. So in, in one of the things we learned about in the course 
is the, this core concept of a signifier in an interface.、Mm. And a signifier is, is a word or any visual thing that communicates that something is possible and it communicates what's possible.、Mm-hmm. And so, as we move to this higher level, more advanced, more sophisticated, more quote unquote intuitive interfaces, we have situations where you're relying more and more on stored memory of how systems work. And that's fine for the generation that grew up with iOS 5 and iOS 6. Right.、Um, and experience the transition. But for people who are jumping right into this, there's, there, there's all this missing knowledge that they don't have and that the interface no longer provides for them. And that does create this disparity, this gap, which、right. leaves new generations、um, behind. Now, one thing that I noticed, like a difference sort of between. Myself as an adult and children, when, when I encounter like a new thing, I just look at it. I'm like, how does this work? And a kid will just be like, I don't know how it works. I'm just going to start poking things and swiping、yep. things, and they figure it out. And, and I、right. feel like you sort of, sort of become less flexible in how you approach it and less willing to just like play around. You're more like, I don't have time to waste. I just need to use this.、Yep. And it's true. It's become much less intuitive. I mean, it, it's, you wouldn't like. For instance, that's the problem with the new 3D touch thing. Like, nobody even thinks to use it. it. There's no sign that it's there. You don't know what it will work for or what it will do.、And、yeah, you, you just know that、to. it even exists and you have to be willing to play around with it.、Yep. And I feel、mm-hmm. like, and I feel like kids can adapt really quickly if they're given the exposure and opportunity. But there are things yeah, they will which, discover more likely than an adult.、Um, but there are also there are many things in interfaces, I could say,、um, Copy and paste, for example, is a situ- situation where that functionality relies on understanding that computers used to be able to do it in a different way, and that Microsoft Word had buttons for it.、Mm-hmm. Um, but copy and paste is not a functionality that a child is going to even fathom is possible because that, that concept of like grabbing and storing metadata and then having it available somewhere else requires this whole mental model that we maintain. Like, oh,、yeah. I selected this text. Which means I'm now focusing on it, and this command now allows me to store it in this invisible place. And I've just, I've just acclimated to that concept, but a child is not going to discover those more higher level concepts. So, this gets back to your point. You said earlier that you,、uh, you know, a student really can learn all these things themselves and create an opportunity for themselves in the world that they might not otherwise have. But,、um, they, I mean, I guess. They need how- to learn it. It's, it's, I was surprised in the ways in which. My students oriented themselves quickly、right. to the basic systems and design tools we were using, but fundamentally just had not learned or unaware of many day to day important activities that you could do on but, a computer. But so, from what I understand, you're somewhat self taught in this area.、Oh, so,、yeah. I guess I'm curious what's your、uh, perspective in terms of like with coding or all this? Is this something you can teach yourself or do you need a formal education? The, or do you have an advantage with a formal education? Yeah, yes and no. So it's, it's possible that one of the best advantages of a formal education is avoiding this feeling like you don't belong, which is the, the imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome is <laughs> becoming just like a defining quality of our generation, in which we had to teach ourselves so many of the things we now need to know、mm-hmm. that our schools weren't even aware was needed to be taught,、mm-hmm. where we just are plagued constantly in almost every aspect of our lives of feeling like, We don't truly understand how to do it. And I think that's just a consequence of the pace of technology, and it's only getting、right. worse. So it just takes more effort. It's, it's taken me way more effort than maybe someone who's went to design school to feel comfortable calling themselves a designer and comfortable、uh, yeah. um, valuing themselves for what they're worth. I mean, I feel like Donna and I, as editors, are actually in a field where you don't have to go to like editing school to、mm-hmm. become an editor. I mean,、yeah. I, I majored in foreign language instead, and which obviously taught me a lot about how language works. But I, I can definitely relate to that imposter syndrome. It's like if、yeah. you change course in your career or、mm-hmm. take your skills and apply them in a new way, you can feel less confident sometimes. It's, it's the、yeah. result, it's, the, it's typically, or maybe systemically, it's the result of society not being able to. Officially validate the knowledge you have. But other than that, in most situations, there doesn't seem to be much that separates someone with imposter syndrome and someone with an actual degree. 
Right. And I mean, I personally, like going to journalism school also is something that, um, you know, I definitely don't think it's necessary in order to then go into that industry. But for me personally, it gave me a lot of time to develop skills and without like having to compete to get a job in the, in the field. So for me, it was really useful, but I wouldn't say necessary. And I, maybe it's similar, um, in this area that you can, you know, just learn on the job if you're able to get one, but it does seem like a huge disadvantage, um, to not even have that offered in school. And one other thing too, that worries me with the, um, disparities and how much, how much money different schools has is like, when, as we get into this, uh, what schools are going to be having the newest technology and which ones are going to be using devices that are really inferior or don't have the same capabilities. And right. like, do you think that as long as you have something that has a touch screen, really you can teach the same things to students or do you need the like most cutting edge technology? No, I actually do agree that the most advanced technology doesn't matter as that much. Um, Is it more the teachers? Uh, it's It's more... Teachers like you. <laughs> yes. It, uh, te- teachers. The solution is, Michael, you should just teach all the kids yeah. everywhere. <laughs> no, I, I think it's, uh, e- even as a professional designer or developer, there's a general sense that you just avoid the, the last year or so of innovation until it's really solidified itself as hmm. going to last. So a, a developer is not going to adopt the newest um the newest services or options available to them in web development or mobile development because there's huge risk that it's either going to just literally bottom out, it's not going to get adopted, or there's not going to be any um, support for it within the larger systems that they're developing for. And this is a huge issue with innovations in browser technology is, is you, can't really impl- you can't really utilize a new feature until all of the browsers are supporting it. So right. you just I, kind of wait. And, and as a developer, you can't rely on 3D touch. You can't rely right. on the fact that they're going to have a watch. Because like what percentage it's of really iPhones are like, there's a huge percentage of iPhone users who are actually using the iPhone 5S, right? Not yeah. an iPhone mm-hmm. that has 3D touch. Do you, I think you were telling me the other day, Donna, what? It was like were, 60% or something. Right. So iPhone users are using. So if you're wondering, iPhone success users, why so many of your apps are using 3D touch, not at all, or in such a basic way, it's because 60% of the potential customers don't even have that option. Yeah. 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 It, so in that sense, it really is the technology that's been around for five years and is available at relatively accessible prices is in general the most important things to be learning. Interesting. And, oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I think it's, uh, this is really under- interesting conversation, but I think it's time to kind of like maybe yeah. come to some conclusions and kind of wrap up. So what's the takeaway from all of this? And, yeah, what's the takeaway and what kind of future are we building towards? Do we see it being a positive thing for our learning to function in a world full of screens? Um, we, we very likely are creating ourselves a world where we're just in screens. Um, <laughs> that is a possibility. And there are, however, some interesting visions of alternatives that are not <clears throat> that are not consumed by rectangles in front of our faces. I mean, <laughs> clearly, like, the virtual reality phase, which is going to become a big thing, is just getting screens even closer to our faces. Um, <laughs> but there, there's two interesting um, visions of a future that's not dominated by screens. And one of them would be uh, the movie Her, where mm. it's, a, it's a predominantly um, sound-based. And we're seeing services that are moving more and more towards uh, just kind of verbal or audio communication or text-based communication mm-hmm. as an interface uh, right. with Facebook's new M and there's a service called Opera or Google Now where you're talking or mm-hmm. Siri. Yeah, Siri, they're really beefing up the Siri capabilities. So we can imagine a situation in which most of what we accomplish is just through talking and hearing. And so that takes a screen out of our face. Um, there's also a, a really impressive and visionary developer designer who used to work with Apple. His name is Brett Victor, and he's kind of just like an eccentric um, designer, developer, and just thinker about technology in the future. And he imagines a point at which uh, nanotechnology allows us to have a substance, basically like a super advanced digital Play-Doh, 
in which we can program and manipulate a physical substance in the same way that we I currently design in pixels. And so yeah. we can be prototyping and building and manufacturing and exploring and learning with a real object that changes shape, changes properties, and can be dynamic in a real-world environment. So 3D modeling becomes hands-on. Architecture designing becomes hands-on. Designing becomes hands-on. fascinating. Education becomes objects. It's, it's like 3D printing, but instantaneous. So th- I guess then would you say to people who'd be like, well, why are, why are we teaching our kids to use technology all the time? Yeah. Like there is definitely the anti-technology, you know, crowd or sentiment. Um, what would you say as like a parting word of like of the potential positive future for yeah. technology and education? I mean, I'm kind of in the camp that like agriculture set civilization back. Like mm-hmm. I thought that was detrimental to society. So it clearly is a compromise. There's and, so much we could go into right yeah. there. That's a whole new podcast. Sure, yeah. This is, the, this is the idea that like every convenience that we create for ourselves removes us one degree from competency. And it really is about the idea that if you're afraid of a new technology or the way in which it makes something easier to the point where people don't appreciate it, society has been a continuing example of seeking higher challenges anytime the current one becomes... Uh, no longer becomes trivial. Well, and I would say that sometimes when, because usually if you're once, you know, like every convenience often frees up that sort of, you know, as, as it, like your physically or your brain frees you up to go and accomplish something new. I yep. mean, for instance, the family legend in my family is when my grandmother got her first washing machine, she was able to go out and get a job because yep. it was doing laundry for, <laughs> you know, how many kids? Seven kids. Someone, <laughs> Read someone her up to do something different with her life. Someone who's sufficiently removed from that paradigm, who, who predates that paradigm, is going to see that as they're not going to. They'll be less likely to appreciate what could be accomplished next. And I am. I'm going to be less likely to appreciate what my daughter can do once she's inundated with virtual reality. And I'll mm. only see the problem of virtual reality. And the waste of the effort I took to create this future for her. But she'll be ignoring me and trying to imagine the next big challenge that she'll be able to accomplish taking this one for granted. I, li- I like that idea. Yeah. I mean, like, and it kind of explains the sort of like in the good old days, yeah. like when I did everything by hand. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's a good parting thought for yeah. our listeners. Uh, thank you so much, Michael, for being with us today. And yeah, thanks a lot, Michael. This was great. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. We'll be back next week. Thanks, everyone.